Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. And we welcome all to our Sunday morning Bible study. Uh, whether you are here in person in our gymnasium, uh, whether you're joining us in the local St. Louis area, KFUO 850 AM radio, or anywhere online uh, through KFUO.org, we welcome you to our Bible study this morning. Uh, for those that are here in the gymnasium, there are Bibles over on the side cart over there if you would like. Uh, we are going to be continuing our in-depth study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 3, and we'll finish today. We're going to look at the baptism of Jesus and also the genealogy of Jesus, and be taking a look at primarily those two things here today. Uh, before we begin, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you with thanksgiving and praise for all your blessings to us, those you bring to us as individuals, and especially also as a congregation. We thank you especially for the gift of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and for his voluntarily going to the cross and laying down his life as payment in full for the sins of the world. And we thank you that through the Holy Spirit's working in water and word, we share in all that Christ has done for us. We have forgiveness and we have everlasting life by your grace through faith in your Son. Be with us this day and send your Holy Spirit to guide and bless us as we continue in our study of your word. May we continue to grow in our knowledge, our faith, and our understanding of your word, and especially also of our understanding of your will for us as your children here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, Luke chapter 3. Uh, just a, It's an unexpectedly rainy morning here today. I didn't think we were supposed to get rain, but we certainly do. I want to take just one moment of privilege just to mention something that... Um, I think uh, many in the St. Louis area will be aware of as well that uh, today marks the final Sunday that Dr. Mark Bender will be serving as our Minister of Music. He is retiring uh, effective uh, this coming Saturday. So today is the final day he is at the organ bench as our Minister of Music after 30 years uh, here at St. Paul's and 17, I believe it is, prior to that uh, in the Indianapolis area. So uh, we join together. There will be, uh, by the way, as people here know, there will be a big celebration on August 22. That will be the official uh, celebration date. Uh, but uh, obviously this doesn't happen every day. And uh, we're, we're very grateful to God for Dr. Bender and all that he has done through Dr. Bender uh, all these many years in our midst. So. Having said that, let's turn to Luke chapter 3, and we're going to start with the baptism of Jesus. We want to start at verse 21, then, of Luke chapter 3. Luke 3, starting at verse 21. And we'll compare and contrast a little bit Matthew's account of this as well. But let's just read Luke's account, first of all, 21 and 22 of Luke 3. Now, when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So first of all, we kind of pick up that uh, this is not just a private baptism. It does not appear to be just John the Baptist, and Jesus here. Uh, Luke begins that when all the people were baptized, so they were all being baptized there, and again, this is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River out in the wilderness, and I don't know what you think, but you know, when we look at Luke's account of this, it's almost like he kind of mentions it in passing. You know, this is a big deal, really. And it's sort of, you know, well, when all the people were baptized... And Jesus also had been baptized. And we say, well, wait a minute here. Let's, let's, can we have a few more details uh, than that? But Luke, again, kind of almost glides right over it here. But let's take a look. It's, it's a very brief mention of it. Luke does not mention 
the, what we have in Matthew, that when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, what's John's reaction? I should be baptized by you, right? The, the table should be flipped here. You know, you're coming to be baptized by me? So let's, if you could keep your finger here in Luke chapter 3, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 3 and just kind of look at Matthew's account of this. And again, you'll see what I mean uh, when we read what uh, his account tells us. Let, let's just uh, go to verse 14. I think that's kind of the, the crux of it here. Uh, Matthew three fourteen. John would have prevented him, would have prevented Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Jesus consented. And, you know, first of all, we look at this and we see, we were talking about this last week a little bit, the great humility of John the Baptist. He was getting a great deal of notoriety. He was a big deal. Remember, all the people were coming out to be baptized by him. Even soldiers, even tax collectors were out there, remember, asking, what should we do? And through all of this, we see that John knows his place. He is not the one to come. He is there simply to prepare the way for the one who is to come. And we see him consistently and always pointing not to himself, not to his own uh, great works and what he is doing, but instead pointing to Jesus. And I think I mentioned last week, the more I look at John the Baptist, read about John the Baptist, study about John the Baptist, the greater sense of appreciation I have for John the Baptist. I mean, would that all pastors, for example, could be like John the Baptist, right? Pointing, it's not about us, it's not about anything we do or have done or will ever do, it's just pointing to Jesus. That's what we are here to do. And John so... Uh, without fail in the Gospels, does exactly that. Um, Now let me ask you this. Did Jesus need this baptism of repentance that John was performing? Did Jesus need to have this baptism of repentance? Everybody shaking their heads no online. Uh, Why not? Why did he not need this? He is, again, we talked about this some weeks ago, right? Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born, uh, conceived and born without sin. 100% man, 100% God, but 100% man without sin because he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. If he had sin in him, either original sin or later committed sin, could he lay down his life for anybody else? No, he would be paying for his own sin when he shed his blood and gave his life on the cross. So in that sense, Jesus does not need to have this baptism in the sense that everybody else who came out to John to be baptized. But notice notice the way Jesus responds here. Still back in Matthew, I'm sorry, still back in Matthew 3. Um, he, He says... Let it be so now. So, John, let let it happen. Let this happen. For thus it is fitting for us, you and me, John, to fulfill all righteousness. And this fulfilling all righteousness, um, in a way, it's, it's a continuation of everything we have seen thus far in the life of Jesus. Everything has been done correctly and according to the law. We talked about this when he, on the eighth day, was brought to the temple, was circumcised and named, and remember Simeon then uh, sees his Savior, and uh, we have the nunc dimittis, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. Everything has been done, we might say, according to the book. 
or by the book here. And this word here, righteousness, in the Greek, in the New Testament, and its corresponding word in the Old Testament for righteousness, it's dikiusene in the Greek and zedekah in Hebrew, so you can go home and impress people if you want to with that. Uh, those, those words, particularly in the Old Testament, are connected with God's acts of salvation. In other words, when that word righteousness is used in the Old Testament, many times it is teamed up, it is connected with God's act of salvation. Take a look, I have to keep asking you to turn, uh, look around, a great example of this is Psalm 71. So if you could just flip over to Psalm 71 for just a moment. Again, sorry that we're moving around a little bit, but I just wanted to show you this, that the word righteousness here is connected many times with God's saving acts. Let's look at Psalm 71, and we can just look at verses 15 and 16, and we've got examples, examples galore throughout the psalm, but this, let's just look at 15 and 16 uh, to kind of zero in. So 15, my mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation. Notice there the connection. Your righteous acts, God, your deeds of salvation all the day. In other words, I'll talk about it all the day. Uh, For their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. So, let's stop and step back for a moment. If that word righteousness now is going to be fulfilled, and it's going to be connected with God's saving activity on behalf of his people, first of all, let's talk about in the Old Testament... What kind of saving acts would God's people have been excited about and the psalmist telling about day after day and he he couldn't describe? What are some of those in the Old Testament that the psalmist might be thinking of as God's righteous acts of salvation? Got any? The Exodus, right? I mean, uh, God's people are slaves in Egypt for more than 400 years. And he comes through uh, this unknown guy, Moses, calls Moses and leads his people out. That is probably the act in the Old Testament that people would point to. What other things, though, did God do besides just lead them out of, out of Egypt? Yeah, the, the promise after the flood with Noah, which we just had today, many of our churches will have today, as our Old Testament reading, right, where God makes a covenant with Noah and says he will never again uh, destroy uh, uh, the creation using uh, water and the flood. And the reminder is the rainbow, right? So every time we see a rainbow, hopefully it maybe comes to our mind, I hope anyway, a reference back to Noah. What else did God do for his people? The promised land gave them the land, right? Even though, remember, when God's people got right up to that land, and they sent in the spies. Remember how they came back, and oh, the people there are so big and so formidable, we better not. Remember, only two guys came back with, you know, the, the, the good news that God has promised to give us this land, let's go. Joshua and Caleb, right, very good. Boy, this, is a, this group is better than the average group, that's for sure. Um, okay, so uh, brought them out of Egypt, gave them a land, um, covenant with them after the flood. How about out in the wilderness? What did God do for his people out there? Yeah, they had this manna. You know, manna means what is that? They didn't know what it was, you know. And uh, God fed them for all those years out there in the wilderness, and they complained about that. And, well, he gave them water, manna. They complained there's no meat. He gives them meat, (laughs) meat in abundance. And... uh, Anyway, so these are just some of the saving acts. I mean, we could go on and on and on. But why would Christ be saying to fulfill all righteousness if righteousness is connected with God's saving activity? What is Jesus going to do? 
Yes. This is the start of his ministry, and it is inching ever, ever closer to the ultimate act of salvation on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And we're heading in that direction already. This baptism now is marking the beginning, remember I said this last week, marking the beginning of this roughly three-year earthly ministry, and most certainly, Jesus knows where this is heading. And he now will be baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness, and there is yet another significance here in the fact that he is baptized by John. Being baptized by John, we begin to see how Jesus is going to bring about salvation. He is going to take our place. He is going to stand with us. In other words, when he steps into the Jordan River, not needing to do so, but voluntarily steps into the Jordan and submits to the baptism of John, he is standing there now for all of us. And ultimately, he is joining himself with sinners, even though he is without sin, just as he did in a way when he came to this earth joined himself with us. Uh, You know, as John says, came and dwelt among us, tabernacled with us. And ultimately, we are going to see him taking our place on the cross. It's another way of speaking of his atonement. You know, taking the punishment that should have been ours there in our place. And we see that theme sort of beginning right here, where he steps into the Jordan River and is baptized in, you know, in, in effect, standing there with us and for us. You know, I'm reminded of, um, of Romans chapter 6, where, you know, uh, Paul talks about that in our baptism, we were what? We were buried with Christ, right? And that's in our baptism, where we are united with him, And one of my favorite verses is verse 5 of Romans 6, that if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will surely be united with him in a resurrection like his, right? So again, we see here, and I wanted to read for you, um, you know, a sermon, uh, from from a sermon, I'm not going to read a whole sermon, uh, a paragraph from a sermon that Martin Luther wrote in the year 1540. And this was a sermon that he preached at a service in which a Bernard von Anhalt was baptized. And Luther said the following, Christ accepted it from John for the reason that he was entering into our stead, indeed our person, that is becoming a sinner for us, taking upon himself the sins which he had not committed, and then wiping them out and drowning them in his holy baptism. Now, that last little bit, <laughs> I think Luther might have gone a little too far there. Uh, you know, there's, Jesus is not wiping out our sin in his own baptism. He's going to do that on the cross, right? And, and I think Luther maybe gets a little carried away there. Uh, which is a good point, a good place to point out that, you know, sometimes people think that we as Lutherans, well, every word that ever came out of Luther's mouth, we absolutely say, oh, yes, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's the truth. No, uh, we match up what Luther says with the word of God. We understand what Luther was implying there, and he does that very well, that, again, Jesus is stepping into our place. He is taking the place of sinners there in the water of the Jordan, okay? But he won't do away with our sins there. He will on the cross, however, where again, he will take our place. He will take the place of sinners uh, as he hangs there from the cross. Um, So in being baptized, he is identifying with all people who are all uh, obviously in need of baptism, including all of us, right? And we thank and praise God. We'll talk in just a little bit uh, about our own uh, baptism. And from this point on now, in taking our place, 
Jesus will be the faithful Son of God. He will do what Old Testament Israel could not do. He will do what we could not do and do not do. He will be completely, perfectly faithful to the Father without sin of thought, word, or deed. And only because of that, then, will he be able to offer that perfect life as payment for all sin and all evil. So this is just the beginning now. It is his act of righteousness now for us and for all people. All right, back to Luke 3. I'm sorry to take you around through the scriptures so much, but back to Luke 3. One thing that I think we glide over or can glide over if we don't notice it, what is Jesus doing when the Holy Spirit comes down? He's praying, right? Um, And, you know, again, we, we see Jesus, and sometimes, again, I think we tend to just glide right over it, but he is praying to the Father many times during his three-year earthly ministry. Probably the most uh, well-known time was when? Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah, Monday, Thursday evening, right? Where he says to the Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Um, You know, we'd love to know, obviously, what he was praying to the Father here at this time. But certainly, uh, you would certainly think that now, when this earthly ministry is beginning, and of course, knowing where it's going to end up, uh, he is in earnest prayer with the Father, that he that he is faithful to the Father, carries this to its completion. We've got to remember, he is 100% man in addition to being 100% God. And obviously what awaits him is anything but comfortable and pleasant, just the opposite. And so I think it is significant that he is in prayer here with the Father. Now, what happens after this um, all, uh, all four of the gospel writers uh, describe that the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus at this point. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the ones that talk about a coming down in the form of a dove, right? And so uh, this is kind of interesting because... If we take a look, and um, I'll just, you don't have to turn to Isaiah 61. I'll just read it, and we'll talk about it. I don't want to have you going all over the Bible here. Um, But notice Luke's phrase there that the Holy Spirit came down in its bodily form of a dove, which I think is important. This was not just the image of a dove there somewhere or a phantom spirit in the form of a dove. But the Holy Spirit took on the form of a dove. It's the same word we use in Greek for body, soma, and came down in that bodily form as a dove. Why is this important? Because it identifies Jesus as the anointed one of God, on whom the Spirit rests. Why is that important? Because back in Isaiah 61, you want to look again, I'm going to stop you. Isaiah 61, where Jesus himself is speaking. Listen to what he says. Starting at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Notice there again, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, upon Jesus. Now, the word Christ means what? Anointed one or Messiah. 
anointed with what? The Holy Spirit, which happens at his baptism, sets him apart at his baptism and clearly identifies him at his baptism. The readers of Luke already know this, of course, but the people standing around there didn't all realize this. So Christ means Messiah or anointed one. And the other thing we don't want to uh, fly by is that for John the Baptist, he was told by God that the one who he sees the Spirit rest on is the one. So take a look, if you would with me, at John chapter 1. We're not going too far here. John chapter 1. 32, 33, and 34. So John 1, starting at verse 32. And John, this would be John the Baptist, bore witness. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. When when did he see that? At the baptism, right? At the baptism of Jesus. And it remained on him, on Jesus. 33. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. All right? So the baptism of Jesus and the Spirit coming down is again the fulfillment of what John was promised that he would see the Spirit come down and descend on the one who is the Son of God. And so again, the baptism of Jesus clearly marks him as this anointed one, the one on whom the Spirit of God rests. Now, one one other aspect of the Isaiah prophecy that I read just a little bit earlier. In uh, two weeks... We're going to see in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus comes to his hometown, comes to Nazareth, and uh, he goes to the synagogue, as is his uh, custom, as Paul's custom as well. And the ruler of the synagogue must have chosen Jesus to both read the scriptures and then comment on the scriptures that day, which was the custom back at that time. You, would, you could often have a guest rabbi, a guest teacher uh, come and do that. Jesus reads, and it was open, he, it opens up to uh, the very prophecy that I just read earlier from Isaiah 61. And uh, again, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart and so on. And then remember what Jesus does. It says here uh, in Luke 4, verse 20, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, because you sat down to teach at that time. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what is Jesus in effect saying there about the Isaiah prophecy? Yeah, it's me. And... uh, as you remember, and we'll see uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, things don't end very amicably there in his hometown. They take him out and want to throw him off a hill, kill him. Um, and, uh, but at any rate, uh, again, Jesus is clearly saying here that this anointing by the Holy Spirit, his baptism, is again marking him as the, the servant who was to come, the suffering servant who was to come the one whom God would place his spirit upon, okay? We also don't want to fly by the fact that we have all three persons of the Trinity here clearly uh, described as as being present there, right? Obviously, Jesus is in the water and comes out of the water, Holy Spirit in the bodily form of a dove, and we've got the voice of the Father from heaven, okay? So let's take a look. Uh, there's only, I was thinking about this, there are, there are other places in the scriptures, especially, I guess, in Revelation. But, you know, this is, again, one of those spots where all three are there, and the gospel writers do not miss this. This is a big event. 
Okay? Um, now, in some ways, remember we talked about John's baptism of repentance. And we said it is not the same as the Trinitarian baptism that Jesus commands in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we said that it is a baptism of preparation, you might say, uh, for Christ and for receiving him as Savior. It, it means, again, to turn away from one's former sins and one's former uh, uh, misplaced trust in being children of Abraham or trying to, vain, in futility, keep the law uh, completely and turn toward now Christ, who is the one coming. Now, interesting that here, in Jesus' baptism, we do see the Holy Spirit actually involved here, don't we? This is the first time that any baptism of John the Baptist, we see anything or hear anything about the Holy Spirit. And some have said that this is, you know, this is kind of fitting, because it's almost like a segue to the eventual baptism, the Trinitarian baptism, where most certainly the Holy Spirit is active. It is a washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit, right? So this is almost a, a sort of a segue. Um, now, the voice of the Father here clearly identifies Jesus as whom? His Son. Not just His Son, but His Beloved Son, uh, with whom he is well pleased. What, where is the other time that the voice of the Father says something very similar? Transfiguration, right? Where Jesus, remember, Peter, James, and John go up there, and there's Moses and Elijah, and they are there with Jesus talking about his, literally in Greek, his exodus, his leaving, Right? which is, again, a segue to where he is going to be going, going to the cross. And, again, you don't have, I, I feel so bad about having you turn all over the place, but Matthew 17 at the Transfiguration, you can just listen if you don't want to uh, look it up. So he, Peter, and, of course, Peter is always, you know, uh, speaking before he thinks things through, uh, was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them or enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said... This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And notice here, uh, the Father adds the phrase, listen to him. We don't have that in the baptismal account, but we do in the transfiguration account. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Okay? So again, we have John saying in the scriptures that this one is the Son of God because I saw the Spirit come down and rest on him. We have the Father saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We have already had in the Gospel of Luke uh, evidence after evidence that this in fact is the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one of God who has come. Okay? Now, uh, just for a few minutes, it's, it's, of course, just about impossible to think about the baptism of Jesus without calling to our minds what? Our own baptism, right? And again, even though this baptism by John here was not a, you know, the Trinitarian baptism by which, in, in which we were baptized, okay? But it reminds us of our baptism. And we're blessed that at the 1045 uh, service today, we're going to be, at, in our sanctuary, going to be uh, having a baptism there. We look forward to that as we do any and every time. But in reading about this baptism, it reminds us again of what God has done for us in the water and word of holy baptism. Unlike some denominations, we do not believe that baptism is merely a symbolic act. We do not believe that, for example, the water of baptism merely symbolizes 
the washing away of our sin. That is just a, an image, you might say, for what God has done. It is much more than that. Do we as Lutherans believe that baptism is our action or God's action? God's action. And that, I think, makes all the difference. Unlike some denominations, some, uh, again, uh, Christian denominations, where baptism is something that I do, it is a statement I make to God, or maybe it's even a commitment I make to God, and I have to wait until I'm 8, 9, 10 years old to be able to do that, we say, no, that's just the opposite. Baptism is always God's work, right? It is not our work. And when you, where you start in the understanding of baptism determines where you end up, right? If you start with the premise that baptism is our work and is merely a ceremony where we dedicate ourselves or make a statement to God or something along those lines, that determines where you end up with, with what you're doing, right? And we as Lutherans say that baptism is one of the two sacraments that we have. And again, for, to be a sacrament in the Lutheran church, we say it has to meet three criteria, a holy act, right? That was instituted by God. Well, Christ said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Okay, there's our institution, right? It has a physical element connected to it, in this case, the water of, of baptism. And third, and most importantly, it gives the forgiveness of sin, right? So, we say those things, again, are done by God and can only be done by God. If, if we were to take a look, for example, at Acts 2.38, Peter at Pentecost, and, of course, he preaches a credible sermon uh, really convicting people's hearts that they have, in fact, uh, the good news is the Savior came, the bad news is you killed him. Right? And they are, they are cut to the heart. What should we do? You know, the question, what, what should we do? And so in 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit simultaneously. So, baptism, forgiveness of sins. Paul, in uh, Acts 22, verse 16, is recounting what Ananias said uh, when he uh, came and, and um, uh, restored Paul's sight after he had been blinded on the road to Damascus. And, uh, and Ananias says, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And there are other passages we could look at as well. Baptism also now saves you, and so on. So again, uh, what a blessing we have in baptism. Um, there's a quote, I, I love this quote, from Luther's large catechism. It's in the section right near the end, actually, where he's been talking first about baptism, then about infant baptism. And near the end of the, in the large catechism, talking about baptism, this is what he says. Thus we see what a great and excellent thing baptism is, which snatches us from the jaws of the devil and makes us God's own, overcomes and takes away sin, and daily strengthens the new person, and always endures and remains until we pass out of this misery into eternal glory. Isn't that a great section? I just love that. Uh, he, he just in those few sentences just summarizes so beautifully uh, what God does in and through baptism. Okay? All right. I've been talking for a long time. I'm going to stop here. Any questions? We're going, to, we're going to move on from the baptism to the genealogy. And remember, I said last week, we're not going name by name through the, through the genealogy. We'll be, here, we'll be here a month of Sundays just doing that. Uh, but first, let me stop. Any either comments, questions, input at all about what we just looked at on the baptism of Jesus or baptism. Yeah, Pam?
Yeah, that's an excellent question. The question, in effect, I think you're probably referring to when we looked at Matthew's account and John said, I did not know him. And that is a puzzling thing. Remember we said, uh, was it two weeks ago, that from his youth, John was out in the wilderness. And we thought, that is really strange. You know, uh, his parents, and we do think by the time Jesus came to be baptized uh, by John, when he's, as we're going to see here, 30 years old, uh, that most likely uh, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were probably dead at that point. Because remember, Elizabeth was... Um, advanced in years, I think was the phrase uh, that was used, uh, when she conceived. But before that, when John is a youth, they'd like to know, okay, well, how old, what, what are we talking about here as a youth, and he's out in the wilderness? You know, does he have any family out there? Who's kind of watching him? And then there's that statement also, I myself did not know him, but then the Spirit came, and, and yet it does seem when in Matthew's account, it does seem that somehow John understood because he said, I should be baptized by you, not you by me. So I, I don't have a good answer for you, unfortunately. I, I can look that up, and uh, actually Pastor Thompson will be here next week. So he, uh, just ask him next week, and he'll... <laughs> no, uh, it, it is one of those spots that's, that's a, little, a little troubling, or a little, not I should say troubling, but we just don't know. You know? It, it's, it seems a little odd. Yeah. Good question. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Okay. Yeah. The, uh, the statement was uh, odd that he's baptizing in the wilderness. Where did he get the water? Well, there is, in the wilderness, there is a Jordan River that runs through it. In fact, the Jordan, uh, maybe some of you have been over. I know some of you have been over there. But the Jordan starts off way at the north, and it... The northern part, uh, you can go there today, is very lush. And in, uh, we, we stood right by the headwaters of the Jordan River. And it rapids are coming by and so on. The snow melts up there. But the more and more south you go, the more and more arid it becomes until you get down to the lowest point on the face of the earth, the Dead Sea. And it's extremely arid. And anyway, even at Jerusalem... Uh, if you stand in the Garden of Gethsemane, all Jesus would have had to have done on Monday, Thursday evening, and, and it would be dark, and, and quite frankly, the uh, uh, Kindred Valley that separates Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives is not that big at all. To call it a valley is kind of an overstatement. Jesus, I'm sure, could have at night seen the torches of you know, the soldiers coming toward the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him, it's on the side of, the, on the side of a, a Mount of Olives, could have taken off, gone over the top of the Mount of Olives, and he would be out in the wilderness. Right after that, there is wilderness. But he did not. He remained. Uh, that's something I think uh, can't help but impress you if you stand there in the Garden of Gethsemane and take a look. Okay? So the wilderness was out there, and the Jordan River runs all the way down the middle, kind of like a spine almost, of, of the Promised Land, dumping into the Dead Sea eventually. So that's where John was baptizing. And many times of the year, especially during the dry season, um, it might be a bit of a of, um, too much to call it a river. It, it is <laughs> like a little stream. And, um, you know... Uh, so that's, that's where he was doing his baptizing. And we talked before, remember, about the role that wilderness seems to play in the scriptures. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to be looking, uh, you're going to be looking at Jesus being tempted by the devil where? In the wilderness, right? And again, in the Old Testament, uh, you get uh, God's people out in the wilderness where he is forming them, almost reforming them to be his his people before he brings them into the promised land. And many of the other prophets were active out in the wilderness. It seems like, uh, and again, I, there's nothing stated to this effect in the scriptures, but it seems like a lot of good spiritual things in the Bible happen out in the wilderness. And yet it's in the towns 
where, you know, Jesus is confronted and, and uh, Paul is accosted and so on. It seems to be in the towns where all the opposition is, right? And all the, all the not-so-good things uh, happen as well, okay? So, anyway, great question. But, yeah, he, John is out in the wilderness. Jesus goes out to him in the wilderness. And now we'll see next week that Jesus is going to be led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, okay? And, again, if you have been there, it is very arid. Uh, very, uh, very arid. I, I don't know how else to describe it. There's just not a lot there, you know, in terms of, of uh, any kind of lush plantings or anything like that. You get an occasional oasis where, you know, there, there's a source of water there. And when you go to Israel, you learn very quickly uh, how valuable water is. And if you wanted to defeat your enemy, you poisoned his water source. You threw a dead animal into the cistern, and then you've got them, because you can just wait them out, as long as you've got water, of course. All right, enough. I, 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 I uh, go astray here. Uh, any other uh, either comments or questions about either baptism, Jesus' baptism, before we move on? All right, I know we've been waiting to get to the genealogy, so let's, let's just take a look at this. Uh, verses 23 through 38 of Luke of uh, Luke 3. I'm just going to read this through, do my best on these names. Uh, you can follow along. Then uh, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of, it's really Eli, the son of Mephat, son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of uh, Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Moth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semein, the son of Joseph, the son of Yoda, the son of uh, Joannan, the son of Resa, um, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of uh, Joram, the son of Mathoth, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Na- Naushan, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ami, or Arni, I'm sorry, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Roy, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, uh, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Woo! We made it. (laughs) All right. Now, before we, as I said, first of all, we have to admit, about a lot of these, we know nothing. Okay? There's nothing in Scripture about them. But let's just stop and step back for a moment. What is the point? And by the way, this is one of two genealogies of Jesus. The other one is right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Okay, But let's just step back and ask ourselves, why would Luke uh, include something like this? Why would Luke think it important to trace back the lineage of Christ, in this case, all the way back to Adam and all the way back to God at the very end. Why even bother with that? I mean, it's all those names. Uh, we, we can do without that. What do you think? What's the point of having it in there in the first place? I'm sorry, what? Okay, it is history, right? Definitely is. And remember, Luke is... Uh, give, as he said at the very beginning, 
he's researched things in order to present an orderly account to a guy named Theophilus, right? So that's part of the history, the research. Prophecy given to Adam and Eve that, he, that God will send one who will crush the head of Satan. Yeah. By doing this, don't you show, or doesn't Luke show in this case, the legitimacy of Christ's conception and birth. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago when um, I was preaching, maybe you don't remember, but anyway, I, I said they questioned Jesus. The, 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 the um, religious leaders questioned Jesus and said, is this not the son of Mary? They didn't say, is this not the son of Joseph? And that would have been the way you asked about somebody's ancestry in the Bible, through the father, not through the mother. And so were they, by the way they asked that question, trying to cast aspersions on Jesus' conception and birth? And then remember, in Bible class, we took a look at when Jesus is talking with the religious leaders of the day, all of a sudden the Pharisees break into, and we are not conceived of immorality, and you think, where did that come from? Unless they're implying that Jesus was, right? And so here we have the, if you want to call it this, the legitimacy of Jesus traced all the way back to Adam and to God himself, okay? Now, it's interesting that when you compare the two genealogies, um, Luke has seven uh, different, uh, 11, I'm sorry, 11 different groups of seven people. And oftentimes, the way it ends, the seventh one is somebody significant, like Abraham and David, for example. And he traces all the way back to Adam. If you look at Matthew, he goes in the other direction. He goes and he starts with Abraham and goes all the way up to Joseph, uh, the husband of Mary. So he's, he's allowing for, again, the virgin birth here, that saying it's through Mary now, you know, but Joseph is her husband. Okay? Um, I'll just say also, boy, we're going to be out of time. Um, I'll just say also that there is uh, a lot of discussion out there, a lot of things written about whether this genealogy in, in Luke is the genealogy of Joseph or is the genealogy of Mary. Okay? And you, scholars can make a pretty good argument that it's the genealogy of Mary, actually, here, not of Joseph, okay? Let me show you. Let's get into this. Just We've got only a few minutes left here, and then, uh, again, Pastor Thompson can answer all the questions next week. Um, so the, these two, uh, I should say also, I told you 11 groups of seven for, for uh, Luke. Uh, Matthew has three groups of 14. So different, and Matthew omits some. He's got some generations missing. His point, though, is not every person, but that, again, keeping Abraham, the Abrahamic uh, line, okay? Um, let's go right to the uh, verse uh, 23. He's about 30 years old. Again, remember how Luke is the, is the careful researcher here. He gives us that detail that Jesus is about 30 years old. Interesting that when priests began their service in the Old Testament, Guess what was the youngest age you could start as a priest? 30 years old. Yep. Uh, don't, again, don't turn, but Numbers 4, uh, you know, in verse 3, from 30 years old up to 50 years old, you could serve as a priest. So I guess I'd be washed up as an Old Testament priest by now. But, uh, you know, so 30 was when you started then. Uh, also, it's interesting, I think, that Ezekiel, started his prophetic calling when he was 30 years of age. If you read Ezekiel 1, verse 1, he starts at that age. And guess 
who assumed the throne when he was 30 years of age? David in the Old Testament. So, there's nothing written anywhere about 30 being something really significant, but it's just interesting that now, you know, David started his reign at 30. Now David's greater son is starting his, I don't want to say reign, but he is beginning his, again, three-year public ministry at the age of 30, okay? What did you make of that phrase where it says in verse 23, being the son as was supposed of Joseph? As was supposed, or as was thought to be the son of Joseph. What's that a reference to by Luke? Oh, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, the, the, uh, what we call the Immaculate Conception, right? That people thought he was, or, you know, as it was thought to be that he was the son of Joseph. And so what's Luke kind of giving us a little wink here? that, okay, you already know about this, Theophilus, but, you know, this guy, 30 years of age, thought to be the son of Joseph, and we really, again, know the, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, right, about, about the, the conception and birth. Um, interesting here, uh, you know, we just don't hear much about anything, really, about Joseph uh, going forward. And again, there's a lot of speculation that was he still on the scene? Was he still around? Had he died by this time? Uh, at the foot of the cross, remember, Jesus turns to John and says, Behold your mother, and to her, behold your son, passing on the, the uh, responsibility for the eldest son to John. Okay? And you're wondering, why, was that, why would that be necessary if Joseph were still around and were still alive? We don't know here at this point uh, when Jesus begins his public ministry, is Joseph still around? We just, we just don't know, all right? All right, I've got 1027, so that means we better uh, uh, close up shop here for today. And so we'll pick up next time. So next time, uh, Pastor Thompson will be doing finishing off the genealogy here, and then also a very important section on the temptation of Jesus, okay? And I think uh, there's, a, there's so much... Uh, within, the, again, the tempting that Satan does uh, of Jesus out there, again, in the wilderness, okay? So let's just close with the benediction then. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.